Hello, welcome back to C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me, I'm your host. Delighted you've joined us today for a new conversation with someone from the C-Suite, both their journey to and the life within what it's like to be operating in the C-Suite. You may recognize me or my annoying voice as the host of what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, where now we are in our nearly 200th episode. And after several years of taping that, both audio and video podcast, what we realized was so many of the podcasts that were the most downloaded, the most watched, were not the big celebrities. They weren't necessarily the big names or authors, they were oftentimes people you could relate to, people that had a similar journey to you or one you were aspiring to. And so we decided to have a podcast dedicated to people that were in the professional setting, that have interesting insights and journeys that we could all learn from. And today I'm honored that Johnny Taylor is joining us, the president and CEO of one of the largest associations in the world, the association that Franklin Covey is very much a member of, SHRM, Society for Human Resource Management. Johnny Taylor joining us today from Washington, D.C. Welcome to our podcast. So glad to be here on this dreary day and cold day in Washington, D.C. But how are you, Scott? Johnny, I'm great. Your personality is positively contagious. I enjoyed our off-camera interview. Excited to have some real conversations with you. Read your recent book called Reset, a national bestseller. Great guidebook for anybody who is in the role of developing people, not only in the human resource side, but actually as leaders to make sure we're playing the right role in culture and leadership development and building an organization that actually meets all of our constituents' needs. We'll talk about the book here in just a few minutes. Johnny, before we get into that, Will you take a few moments and kind of reorient our listeners and viewers to your own journey? You've had a series of very high-profile corporate roles and Blockbuster and other companies. Take a few minutes and talk about your journey to what is now the C-suite at the Society for Human Resource Management. Well, again, Scott, thank you. And thank you to everyone who is taking time out of their busy schedules to listen and watch this. Listen, my story is an interesting one. I told someone the other day I was a millennial before it was appropriate to be called a millennial, before they even had a term, such a term, because I my career spanned that of you know a lawyer where it all began. And I worked in major law firms as well as major corporations. And then I take a, a, took, took a pivot and pivoted to human resources, which was something very new for me, but turned into a really natural segue from the, the background of someone who's a labor and employment lawyer for a significant part of my law practice time. And then I had this thing in me that I wanted to be a CEO. I wanted to not just be in the C-suite as a CHRO or CPO or head of HR. I actually wanted to run something. And I had the great opportunity of doing so for one of the icons in business, Barry Diller, he had a business called IEC Interactive Corp, still has, and I ran one of its businesses. That was my first CEO assignment. I then took what was really a retirement hiatus of sorts and came back to run the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, an organization, so for-profit, non-profit, and now I'm in this hybrid thing called SHRM, uh, the Society for Human Resource Management. We serve industry. We serve 300,000 professionals across the globe, literally 165 countries. But my work now is, is that of sort of, I'm an HR person, I'm a CEO, and, and, and all of that wrapped up, and a lawyer because policy is a big part of HR. So everything that I've done over the last 25 years of my career has led me to accept this role four years ago at SHRM and to bring it all to, 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 to the forefront of my practice. Johnny, it's a great story 
because I've spent my 30-year career on the people side of business as a C-suite officer, even as, as this chief marketing officer of what is the world's largest leadership development firm, Franklin Covey. And I think what yes. you've done is you brought to SHRM, which is our association, you've brought legitimacy to not just the role of the people side of the C-suite, but as the CEO of previous businesses, you can help all of us that are on the people side better understand, quote, how do you get a seat at the table? How do you make sure that the CHRO and the CPO are taken seriously by the CEO and the board? We'll talk more about that. One of the things I think you're quoted about is that organizations tend to have lost sight of evolving worker needs, that maybe organizations are evolving slower than what their associates' needs are. Unpack that a bit and talk about how do companies, and not just maybe catch up with, but maybe even lead out on what their workers' needs are. So the best way to kind of explain, there are two things that are happening. One, our legislative framework, it lags. Essentially, the Fair Labor Standards Act has been the law of the land since 1948, right? So we've not made a ton of changes uh, since the 40s when it comes to how we think about employees and the workplace and the social contract that exists between employees and employers. So the, the legislative framework has really created some of the, the problems that we have from, a, from an employment context because there are things employers now want to do, but they just can't quite figure, it out, figure out how to do it because the law doesn't allow it. That's one thing. From an employee perspective, what's really interesting, and it's been sort of accelerated by the pandemic, is this recognition that this is no longer a buyer's market. Employers can't pick and choose the talent that they want and you know, bring in people, they're fungible, we replace them, et cetera. There's now a seller's market. And over the last five to seven years, we've begun to see that in real time. You know, for like several times during the last several years, uh, the, the, the unemployment rate has been below 4% in many instances, right? And what we know is that, heck, 4% of the U.S. workforce didn't want to work anyway, right? So you're begging people to come to work who are not inclined to come to work. Well, that has created a really interesting dynamic where if our customers, our internal customers are prospective employees or employees, we've got to start listening to them and being responsive to the issues that they raise, issues around culture, which we historically thought were soft issues, right? Real business people didn't talk about culture. Conversations around empathy, uh, sympathy, compassion, terms that we just real business hard-driving leaders didn't think about. We were focused on returns for our stakeholders, for our shareholders, not so much our stakeholders. In other words, the entire workplace, our, our whole relationship with work as employees has changed. And the pandemic just two years ago accelerated that change. And we as employers are really playing catch up. Johnny, your good friend Ariana Huffington a few weeks ago renamed the Great Resignation as the Great Reevaluation. I saw a blog post that she wrote. So wise, because it's so true, right? All of us, those that are still employed, gainfully employed are reevaluating our values. Who will we work for? Who will we not? What kind of culture will we tolerate or not? What do you want our legacies and passions to be? How has the pandemic changed the role that human resources has at, a, at, the, you know, at the phrase of the seat at the table? Does HR have a more prominent role than perhaps they did pre-pandemic? 
my gosh, let me tell you, you, you got, it's the thing, you, the blessing and the curse, right? There is literally no question that over the last two years, and I'll tell you an anecdote about a conversation I had with a fellow CEO, big financial services company. So the answer is yes, and it's changed in ways that none of us could have imagined. To your point, for years, we've been saying we want the seat at the proverbial table. And now guess what? We're in the middle of it. And the demands of the HR professional from the C-suite person, the CHRO, all the way down to the rank and file entry level HR person are overwhelming. And the pandemic is what you know really precipitated and caused this sort of reevaluation, reimagination, and indeed my book, resetting of the way that we've thought about human resources. So I was talking to a CEO, the guy I referred to a couple of, oh, I guess it was several months ago now. And he, he said to me, Johnny, in eight weeks, I've had more meaningful and strategic conversations with my C, with my CHRO than I'd had in the prior eight years. The idea that I sort of saw HR as an administrative necessary evil function, and now I actually see its value because what I've come to fully appreciate is the only thing that will differentiate me from my competitors are my people. My talent yeah. strategy will dictate my business strategy. Johnny, uh, this morning I was having a pre-consult with a client for a keynote I'm giving them on one of the books that I wrote. Privately held company, European-led company, and through the entire global organization, through the entire pandemic, they've been um, in the office. They've never gone virtual. This is a global company, thousands of employees, because the ownership is quite tight and convinced that this is one of their key value propositions with both their clients and their employees. And it's probably worked well in some areas, not in others. And they're now having a challenge because they're seeing a lot of their employees that are able to have a hybrid work environment or perhaps work virtually or live when they need to. And I don't mean to call them out as an example for good or for bad. What I mean right. to do is surface the conversation. What are you finding right now? Are the best organizations doing as it relates to hopefully a post-pandemic culture? Any insights that you would speak to people in the C-suite to say, this is what the best are doing in terms of how they are contemplating policy, listening to employees, not making premature announcements and pulling them back. We've all had seen that happen. Well, give us some advice. Take as long as you'd like. People will be listening intently to your insight on this. So love that. Like, listen, we all sort of reacted in May, April of last of 2020. I want to say last year. It's been two years now. 2020. Uh, so many companies were trying to figure out what to do. And the headlines, all of the major media were, people are gonna work remotely forever. It just wasn't true. We knew that wasn't gonna be the truth, but we did know that we weren't gonna go back to our traditional Monday through Friday, nine to five work week, that the world would forever change as a result of the pandemic. Because finally, you know, all of us who thought these jobs can't be done effectively remotely, we realized that we were wrong. I know I was one, to be very transparent and honest, if you had asked me, could my assistant, my secretary, be useful to me remotely for a prolonged period of time, I'd say, no, it's impossible. I can't do my job without her right outside of my door helping me do the things I do. And guess what? Two years later, we figured it out. So one of the things that we've learned from the pandemic is you know, this insist everyone jumped and made a, you know, drew their own conclusions. To your point, uh, Jack Dorsey, at the time, Twitter and Squares chairman and CEO, made the point that, you know, my people 
people can work from anywhere and you don't have to come to the office and you know that's no that's a thing of the past and so you found companies to your point rushing out and agreeing with him without waiting to figure out and really to study what your employees were actually saying what we've learned and sherm has a group of statisticians io psychologists researchers and staff and our knowledge department what we learned was that employees weren't saying they wanted to work remotely they were during the pandemic when there was in the earliest days of the pandemic when there was so much fear and we didn't know how you got it who would die who would get really sick etc we didn't know but what employees ultimately have told us is they want flexibility not not you know work remotely human beings like to largely interact with other human beings and we found that this was across multi-generational insight was older workers who said listen i'm an empty nester now and i want the social interaction i want to come to work and get to know people younger workers were like listen this is where i might meet my spouse this is where i build friends this is where happy hours occur after work and not coming to work living in a 700 square foot you know studio in new york city isn't getting it for me we heard overwhelmingly that people want to come back to work with one caveat they want to do so with flexibility so the term now is flexibility and that means giving people the opportunity to integrate their work and their lives remember we brought work precisely and directly into people's homes. And so now this is all interrelated and they're like, yeah, I can do some of this work at home and I can do some within the office and there are benefits to both. So hybrid in short is the word that we've all come up with, but even more importantly, the key word here is flexibility, workplace flexibility, how work is done, where it's done, by the way, by whom it's done, doesn't always have to be in the US, uh, you know, W-2 employee, it could be someone who is a W-9 independent contractor or what have you. We're just thinking very differently. And so flexibility, just before the pandemic, we were all talking about becoming agile. And that was really, you know, in the context of our business strategy and our technologies, but agility, the concept also applies for leaders in terms of how you manage your workforce. I think you've just described the point of view of everybody I talk to is they like the flexibility. They don't want to be 100% virtual. They don't want to come back every day from eight to five and, you know, and have that kind of culture, if you will. So I, I appreciate the thoughtfulness you put into that. You can't predict the future. Uh, one of Sherm's greatest assets is the knowledge department you said in terms of the statisticians and the OD psychologists and such. What do you think the future looks like? Do you th I mean, I, without statistics, what does downtown Chicago look like two years from now, or LA or St. Louis, are, do you see the buildings full again? Do you see people, uh, most of us working hybrid? What do you think is gonna, is, will the pendulum swing a little bit back more than we think it will? So here's what, it's funny, we actually have the data on this. So what we, before the pandemic, about 16 million, I'm sorry, 18 million Americans worked remotely fully remotely before the pandemic. People don't realize that. But out of 165 million person workforce, that's a little over 10, 11%, right? What we believe is by 2025, because it's gonna take time for this to all settle out. We've got to, all these variants have to get through the system. We've got to develop a new tolerance for how we deal with these communicable and infectious diseases. But we believe that that number will rise to 36.2 million to be exact. We believe that roughly 20% of the US workforce will be working fully remotely going forward. Now, that still leaves the remaining 80% coming into offices to answer your question. Uh, so I believe downtown Chicago will bustle again. 
downtown Washington, DC, it will happen again. But um, there will be fewer people doing it. And that's probably a good thing for those of, us, those of us who have to drive into work or take public transportation, there'll be fewer, but the majority of workers will end up coming back into an office building. I fully believe that. Johnny, let's pivot for a moment. Let's talk about diversity in the workplace. Uh, you know, whether it was Me Too or the Black Lives Matter movement or social justice or the pandemic, there's been a big comeuppance. In fact, there's probably the great comeuppance, right? In terms of what's happened in corporate culture. I think I read once where you said every CEO should in fact serve as the chief diversity officer. It's a bold yes. statement. Yes. Talk to that point and, and speak to every CEO about what their role should be, Caucasian man in their 60s or uh, Latino woman in her 40s, what should the role of the CEO be in making sure that their organization is developing a culture where there is a, 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 a voice of inclusion and belonging and that we look less like ourselves and more like our customers in the world? Take that wherever you'd like to. Yeah, so listen, I, I have to give credit where credit is due. My now deceased friend, uh, David Stern, who was commissioner of the NBA, yeah. and while he was here with us, he and he's the one who told me that concept. I, I was once at a, at a meeting and someone challenged him and they said, you know, the NBA doesn't have a chief diversity officer. And he proclaimed, I mean, boldly did not back off of it, said, I am the chief diversity officer of the NBA. That diversity, equity, inclusion is so incredibly important to my business. It's in fact our strength as a league. And therefore this is you know, as I think he put it, this is one of the top two or three things that I'm ultimately accountable for, is ensuring that our organization truly, truly embraces this concept. He, we weren't talking equity then, he just said diversity, so he didn't have the I and the E, but it was purely like, I'm the person who's responsible for being the chief diversity officer of this organization. And I'll tell you why that's important, because you point out, you know, we oftentimes in our own minds think, well, you know, a six-year-old white man can't be that, or this or that, and Johnny is theoretically uh, better qualified to be the diversity expert because he's a black man. Well, the reality is, and I hope we all reflect on this, diversity is more than civil rights diversity. Diversity is more than underrepresentation. Diversity, we know that there are 38 or more diversity dimensions, right? Including, for example, polit political affiliation diversity. Uh, there are all sorts of types of diversity that exist right now. And the only way that we make this work, make diversity more than a program, make diversity more than a month or a day when we serve food for people who are a member of an ethnic, ethnic group or racial group or whatever, is that we build it into our culture, that it becomes culturally embedded and not a program and an initiative. And the only way that happens, as we all know, is culture largely starts from the top of the organization. Now, I think there's a grass, there's a grass top, on a tree top, and all of that strategy working it through the organization. But at the end of the day, as you pointed out, the company that the private uh, mid-sized companies yeah. that you the company that you're talking about, diversity, their their culture starts at the top. The leaders will decide largely. Now they may listen to feedback from other, you know, and should, by the way, listen to their employees, but at the end of the day, it starts at the top. So if diversity, equity, and inclusion becomes a cultural issue, so it's not just programmatic, then that means every CEO has to own it. And now that doesn't mean, to be clear, that you cannot bring on board someone who's a subject matter expert to execute it. 
and to help develop the strategy, but the CEO has to own it. Johnny, let's talk about the CEO because the news is ripe with CEO behavior, whether you know, they're firing hundreds via Zoom, whether they're having an illicit relationship with a coworker or perhaps an appropriate one that wasn't disclosed. Perhaps they've done something, what, what, I mean, be our dad for a moment. I mean, remind us, remind us of the non-negotiables. Just kind of tell us again, these are the things that get the most people in the most trouble in the C-suite. It also, of course, destroys shareholder value. It destroys, it destroys you know, the culture of the organization. Kind of remind us of the things that we all need to make sure that we're not engaged in. Right. We can get into a list of things, the do's and the don'ts, but at the end of the day, it's trust. CEOs are in their positions because the board trusts them, because shareholders trust them, and increasingly stakeholders, meaning employees and you know, community members, trust you. And so when we think about everything that's occurring, you know, I don't know that there's a right or a wrong, but you know, save for immoral, unethical, illegal behavior. So let's take that off, that's table stakes, right? But what we do know is that you have to be, people have to trust that what you say is what you mean and what you're going to do. So if you're talking about sexual harassment, you can't go out and tell people sexual harassment, put all of your employees through sexual harassment or anti-sexual harassment training, and then engage in that behavior. You can't tell employees that we have a we acknowledge that people will date. There will be workplace romances. There have been from the beginning of time and will continue to be. But you can't tell people our response is you must disclose and then you don't disclose because now you no longer are trusted by people, the markets, by, by your employees, by the community at large. So what I say to a CEO is no matter where you end up on any of these issues, there's no right. Should you have a disclosure policy? Should you not? Should you mandate masters or not. I don't know, but whatever you do, you've got to walk that talk because people are going to hold us accountable. Long gone are the days where we can say, this is what you do, or it was to say, do as I say, not as I do. That's not acceptable anymore. And if we just take this concept of being true to what you say your organization is, what its culture is, what its good behaviors that will be uh, rewarded and its bad behaviors that will be punished, if you can't do that, then you're not going to be successful in this role because, yeah, you'll get away with it for a while, but it will come yeah. to light. Yeah, yeah. Nicely said again. Johnny, let's talk about your leadership style. Uh, I'd like you to take a moment. Now, you are well-educated. You've been in the C-suite for many decades. You are an attorney by education. Not too many decades now. I'm not old now. Well, right, right. well, you've been a decade, at least a decade. You've been in the C-suite, right? You are, you are an attorney by both training and a C-suite now by choice and by you know, invitation. I'd like you to think for a moment of the people along your journey that have reported to you that perhaps don't like you. I would call them your detractor. Yes. I'd like you to tell me, what would they say about your leadership style? The people that perhaps, you know, you rub them the wrong way, you look back on it and say, yeah, I could have handled that differently. Uh, demonstrate that vulnerability for a moment is in fact a leadership competency, which I know you know that to be true. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's interesting. I, you know, I love the use of the term detractor because that makes me think about net promoter scores and things yes, like right, that. Right, right, right. So detractors. Um, they would say, and I'm going to separate, I'm going to, I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to tell you part of it that I, I'm okay with and part of yeah. it that has, I've evolved yes. toward yeah. saying they were wrong. So number one, I'm, I'm really, really demanding. I, I come from a law firm where it can be unforgiving. Earlier in my practice, you know, if the 
if you filed an appellate brief and the cover was supposed to be blue, blue paper, back in the day when we submitted these things in paper, and you submitted it with yellow or you used the wrong size font, literally the courts of appeals would have a font uh, that you had to use to submit a brief. And this brief could cost a company billions or it could cost someone their life or at least their freedom, right, in a criminal, just, a criminal matter. But they were very, very, very demanding and particular, downright persnickety. And so for a large part of my career, I, I have, have like been unforgiving. If people are not very, very detail oriented and thorough in their work and always prepared, I did not have time for them. And related to that, part of it was, and the detractors were say, and I've, I've come around on this and I'm working, I'm a work in progress, is I didn't have a lot of empathy. Like, and I, I've shared this story once or twice, not often, but I'm gonna, yes, about vulnerability. I worked in an organization, I was, I was in a law firm and I was at the end of the day and I had a secretary who had to leave and get her kid. And if you remember back then, you know, you got secretaries, I don't know how to work the machines, the fax machines, everything, and I'm trying to get a brief out the door. So she comes in and says, I just have to leave now. And my response to her, which I'm not proud of, in fact, embarrassed in today's terms and probably should have been then, but I said, listen, your kid is your problem, not mine. I need to get my, my brief out the door. And you know, when I, Scott, I think and reflect, I was like, what was I thinking? Yeah, I've been there. You know, and, and so I've evolved into a more empathetic leader and that's not to be conflated or confused with the term sympathy. She wasn't looking for my sympathy. I could have said a whole bunch of things like, listen, you know, in advance, let's talk about your childcare issues. What can I do to make that? But instead, I was really blunt and direct. And as leaders who are competitive, who are trying to win, who are demanding, we sometimes and have oftentimes lacked empathy in our approach. That's what the, my detractors will all say, that they'll never question my integrity. They'll never question, um, you know, my ability to see business strategy and, and have been described as a futurist. And I can, you know, project all of that. What they will say is for a while there, as I was climbing the ladder, I was incredibly demanding and unforgiving. Johnny, you're confused. You shared a story from my career. I wanted no. you to share one from your career. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you for the vulnerability. Honestly, I thought it was very endearing and accurate and I appreciated your insight. You've earned the right for the flip side of that question, which is, let's talk about where you are now in your career as a CEO. What would your supporters say it's like to work now for Johnny Taylor? So it's the opposite side of it because I've been so intentional about fixing that is I've become a real 21st century empathetic leader. And, and that is, again, you can, two things can be true. I can be demanding and want to win because that's what the business that we're in, right? No one plays to lose, but also understanding the human condition and understanding, uh, you know, the need to, to try to walk in someone else's shoes, see life through their lens, uh, the, through their eyes, and 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 that's what I've what I've really and so the people around me now will say it's more than a tagline or a buzzword for Johnny to say empathetic leadership is what I'm about. Now, uh, what they would also say, and and I'm very proud of this, is that I have courage, and that's what I think for anyone listening right now, we know it. There's typically not a right or a wrong. When we are involved in some decision-making matrices, we sort of say, I can go left or right. Sometimes it's binary, but both of them come with their risk when you're trying to make tough decisions. And what my team will say is I'll get the data from 
everywhere. I mean, I'm, I'm a wonk, so I'll sit down and read through reams of files and data to make a decision, but then I make it and I don't look back. I've, I've found that it is very, it's not beneficial. Now, if I prove to be wrong, I will acknowledge that I was wrong, but I am not going to spend all day looking backwards because I can't be focused on going forward if I'm preoccupied with having made the decision and going forward. So courage is a big part of what we have to do, having the courage to say, um, in many instances, and I get this often, Johnny, take an opinion on this or that. I said, I'm not going to take an opinion on this or that. That in and of itself requires courage. Speaking of courage and maturity and evolution, I've heard you also say that career development is the new job security. That makes intuitive sense. Uh, speak to the many people that perhaps are in the beginning phase of their career or like me perhaps are kind of in that pre-crescendo phase. I'm in my early 50s. What do you mean when you say that career development is the new job security? Well, so pre-pandemic, you know, uh, and we've done research here at Sherm that tells us that employees all really highly rated job security. That's why people would stay in government making less money than they could other make in the private market. They would stay in companies instead of being entrepreneurs is job security. Well, during the pandemic, what we realized was when we saw countless organizations laying off, furloughing, outright terminating employees, employees had their COVID clarity moment. And in COVID clarity, they kind of said, listen, I don't know that I'm going to be here 30 years from now. Hell, I don't know that I'm going to be here five years from now, even if I'm a great, perform a great performer at work, that is, if, if I'm doing my job well. It could just be that macro trends say that I don't have a job anymore or the job that I was doing significantly changes because of technology, because of whatever. So what employees are now saying to us is invest in my career prepare me for the job of the future and this future may be only five years from now i've accepted that you are not making a lifetime 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 or 30-year commitment to me and guess what i'm not making one to you either so it's a very different relationship that we have in the pandemic has really really brought that home for millennials and generation z many of whom or most of whom almost all of whom had never ever lived through an economic downturn Johnny, I think it was maybe three to four years ago, I found myself sitting on the sofa in the morning time. My wife and I like to watch the Today Show. We are very early risers to beat our three sons before they wake up. And I started to notice a series of television advertisements for Sherm. And I said to my wife, being the chief marketing officer of this global company, Franklin Covey, I said, what's going on with Sherm? Like, did they just like tap into the lottery? Like, like did a private investment company just infuse them with cash? I mean, I see them everywhere. They've gone through this amazing rebranding. They're on television in the morning talking about issues that we're all dealing with. And it was a very unique reposturing, repositioning of your brand and your value, unlike you'd see any other association regardless of industry. I'm guessing you've had some role in that. And I've always wanted to ask you about this significant public rebranding that your association went through pre-pandemic. Have I made that up? Was it just a case that I happened to see more? What happened there? So listen, I'm gonna first give credit where credit is due. That's the other thing my team will say about me is I absolutely celebrate my people. I have a chief marketing experience officer, Janine Andrews Feldman, who is just brilliant. She and her team nail this stuff. So let me start with that. But 
to be fair, you noticed a very significant shift in our strategy here. I came on four years ago, December 17th of 2017 to be exact. I remember the day. And one of the things and the reasons that I accepted this appointment was because HR, the profession, HR, the professional needed to be elevated. And so we decided that our purpose, our driving purpose, we have a mission, we have a vision, we have all of that, but our purpose was to elevate HR. And we were gonna do it in three ways. One, we were going to equip HR professionals with the best and the latest information, knowledge, skills, so that they could do their jobs really well. If you do great HR, then it will lift you and our purpose profession. And then I had to tell the story. So part of this campaign that you've been seeing it, and we didn't see it as an, you know, an expense, a marketing expense to run significant commercial budgets. And, you know, we took over the first minute after the state of union two years ago is to say, we have to make ourselves relevant to everyone in three particular groups. Yes, the CHRO or the HR professionals, we call that CHROs, but we've got to be relevant to the politicos, because so much of the employment experience is impacted by employment law and policy, and then CEOs. So thus, you were exactly the person we wanted. We want CEOs and C-suite executives to say, huh, HR does matter to me. My HR profession matters to me. My HR professionals matter to me. And guess what? HR meaning my people, my human resources matter to me. And so that was a lot of intentionality. We had to go to our board and say, listen, we're going to spend a lot of money. And uh, But it is the only way that we're going to achieve our business strategy and our purpose, because we're a mission-driven organization, is to elevate HR. Johnny Taylor, president and CEO of SHRM, Society for Human Resource Management. Your recent book is called Reset, A Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Upheaval. I found the book fascinating. I don't usually reference books on this podcast, but I brought it to you because I thought it was really congruent with who you are and you've proven that to be true. Thanks for your investment in our listeners and viewers today. Your energy is contagious. Your ability to you know, take complex issues that are nebulous and ethereal like culture and you know, turn them, term them practically in our behavior is an art and a talent you have. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks for joining us for another episode of C-Suite Conversations. See you back here next week for a new discussion with someone else from the C-Suite.